Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. I wanted to let you know about the 2024 tour of the Adelaide Festival and Writers Week, which ABR will present with our commercial partner, Academy Travel. I'll be co-leading the tour with Christopher Menz, a former director of the Art Gallery of South Australia. Join us for nine days of concerts and performances, guided tours of museums and galleries, plus sessions at Writers Week, the odd restaurant, and ABR's unique brand of conversation and conviviality. Full details are available from the Academy Travel website. See you in Adelaide. With just over 10 days to go until a referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament, today we hear from Melissa Castan and Lynette Russell on the history and mechanics behind the proposal. They remind us that if the referendum is successful, the ultimate design of the voice will be settled through a process involving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, the Parliament and the broader public. Melissa Castan is a Professor of Law at Monash University and the Director of the Castan Centre for Human Rights Law. Lynette Russell is Sir John Monash Distinguished Professor and ARC Laureate at the Monash Indigenous Studies Centre. Here is Lynette Russell with their co-authored article, Ancient Sovereignty Shining Through, A Voice to Parliament, Not a Voice in Parliament, published in the October Indigenous issue of ABR. Ancient Sovereignty Shining Through, A Voice to Parliament, Not a Voice in Parliament, by Melissa Castan and Lynette Russell. On many occasions throughout our nation's history, change seemed imminent, perhaps even just on the horizon, but it has always receded into the distance the instigation and then closure of successive important representative organisations such as the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee, the National Aboriginal Conference, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission and the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples illustrates the impacts of electoral politics and the vagaries of political ideologies. Each decade seems to have brought a different structure, some more and some less representative than others. But there has been little continuity or coherence in either the national or state administrative and political arrangements in addressing the specific concerns of Indigenous people. In stark contrast, the 2017 Uluru Statement from the Heart deliberately asserts the authority of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders over the key claims for sovereignty and self-determination, well-known and accepted concepts of political autonomy and authority in international law. The statement declares these concepts are based on spiritual connection to and being the first possessors of the land of Australia. The statement's claim to authority represents pluralist expression of law, a concept that is common in countries that are former colonies where a traditional or customary legal system sits alongside the laws of the former colonial authority. Australia can accommodate many laws, many people and many nations. The Uluru Statement calls for two substantive reforms. The first is constitutional amendment to incorporate a voice to Parliament, an advisory body of Indigenous representatives that would influence and participate in the development of Commonwealth law and policy 
regarding matters that impact Indigenous communities and people. Constitutional entrenchment, rather than simple legislative enactment, is sought to protect the advisory body against dissolution due to changes in political support for such a body, and also to engender popular support for the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait people's rights in the Constitution. The second reform is the establishment of a Makarata Commission, an agreement-making body with responsibilities for developing treaty or agreement-making processes and supporting a national truth-telling process about history, past abuses and colonisation, among other matters. Together, these reforms are expressed in the Uluru Statement as Voice, Treaty, Truth. We understand these elements as working in concert to deliver structural and substantive reform to the legal and political processes that until now have excluded Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination from Anglo-Australian public law. The referendum process itself may have wider effects on the Australian society at large, as much as the 1967 referendum and the National Apology each represented a nationwide shift in attitudes. Given the Australian public law and public policy have generally been dismissive, derogatory and often destructive towards Indigenous laws and governance structures, there are strong arguments for the Federal Constitution to include acknowledgement of the first occupation, ownership and sovereignty of Australia by Indigenous people. Now, through the broad Indigenous community consultations that led to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, through numerous Australian parliamentary committees and inquiries, through the affirmation of governments and many lawmakers, civil society, organisations and the private sector, we have a proposal for an Indigenous-led advisory body known as the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. That advisory body would be included in our Australian constitution by way of referendum, which is the only way we can alter the words of our constitutional document. And it needs to be in the constitution, not only to protect the body from the changing whims of governments, but this is also because of what the Uluru Statement asks of us. Quote, With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. Despite the political debate that has ensured around the voice proposal, we observe that the choice of an institutional advisory body that informs Parliament and the Executive Government is entirely unremarkable. It is a modest proposal. We barely cast a glance at the work of the Productivity Commission or the Australian Law Reform Commission, both of which are mainstream advisory bodies to the National Government. They inform lawmaking, their advice may be considered or not. Similarly, the voice to Parliament will have the capacity to inform policy and reform, but it is not a third chamber of Parliament. It will not make laws or distribute funding. It will not undertake program delivery. It will have no veto. The bill that amends the Constitution makes it clear that Parliament shall have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice including its composition, functions, powers and procedures. Parliament retains control over the way the voice works. There are already a series of guiding principles as to what the voice will be, how it will be composed and how it will operate. The Karma and Langton Report, entitled Indigenous Voice Co-Design Process, Final Report to the Australian Government, delivered in late 2021, sets out some of the key frameworks for how the voice would work. Like any government agency or advisory body, the structure and arrangement for the voice will be decided by Parliament when it passes the laws and establishes the body. 
so politicians will retain the final say in how the voice operates, while the existence of the body is enshrined in the Constitution. The Karma and Langton co-design report was based on widespread consultation and feedback within communities. The model they propose would have 24 representative members comprising state and territory representatives, Torres Strait representatives and five additional representatives from remote areas around Australia. It would be gender balanced and it would include youth representatives. The members would be selected by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities not appointed by the executive government and they would serve on the voice for a fixed period to ensure regular accountability to their communities. Also, with respect to accountability as well as transparency, it is intended that the voice be a subject to standard governance and reporting requirements, and its members would come within the scope of the newly established National Anti-Corruption Commission. Once established, the voice would be tasked with making representations to Parliament and the Executive Government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. The voice would be funded to adequately research, develop and make these representations, which could be in response to requests from government and parliament, just as the Australian Law Reform Commission responds to references from the government, or they could be proactive representations, just as the Victorian Law Reform Commission is able to initiate its own inquiries. Ideally, of course, the parliament and executive government would seek representations from the voice early in the development of proposed laws and policies. If the referendum is successful, a process will be undertaken involving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, the Parliament and the broader public to definitively settle on the design of the voice. The legislation to establish the voice will then proceed through the standard parliamentary processes to ensure adequate scrutiny by elected representatives in both Houses of Parliament. Only then will membership of the voice be decided and the process of feeding advisory representations to Parliament and the government begin. There are many other valid bases for addressing the potential impact of the voice, be they moral, ethical, philosophical, economic, policy or political rationales. But next we will canvass the national values and the goals that flow from having the voice structured in this way and having this advisory role. In this sense, we engage here with the question of the national interest of the voice body. Despite the myriad positive consequences of the voice, as described above, Many myths and much misinformation have been propagated about it. To be clear, what is proposed is a voice to Parliament, not a voice in Parliament. It will have no role in passing legislation that will remain in the hands of the elected representatives in the federal government as required by the Constitution. The voice can make representations to Parliament, but it will be up to Parliament to decide what it does with those representations. It should pay attention to them but it will always take into account a wide range of advice from across the community. The voice does not create special rights for Indigenous people or give them a veto. It just establishes an advisory body. Parliament will be better informed about the impact of proposed laws on First Nations people and can amend its laws where that is appropriate. So, for example, it will inform how closing the gap and other initiatives can best work to improve outcomes. The voice will not damage our democratic relations. It will enhance them. It will not put race into the Constitution, as the Constitution already allows for racially discriminatory laws by virtue of Section 5126 on the race power. It will ensure that the silence and omissions of the past can be addressed in the future. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. 
If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to AVR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the AVR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.